0: I'm J.B. Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gigillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig with details. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner.
1: Gene! Gene Fodor. Gene, was good Personology is a production of iHeartRadio.
2: Lenny Bruce, born Leonard Alfred Schneider, was one of the best stand-up comedians of all time. He was also a social critic and satirist who used politics, religion, sex, and vulgarity to challenge and criticize social mores of the time and faced multiple arrests for obscenity. He created and opened the door for future counterculture comedians. My guest today is Wayne Fetterman, who, in addition to being a successful comedian and actor, teaches stand-up history and performance at University of Southern California. He co-hosts the popular podcast, The History of Stand-Up, which is also the name of his upcoming book. I'm delighted to have him today. Leonard Alfred Schneider. Was born October thirteenth, nineteen twenty-five, in Mineola, Long Island, a nice Jewish suburb, a nice Jewish boy, (laughs) to Jewish parents. Um, I laugh because I'm Jewish, and I know I know this set well, (laughs) and I don't think they've changed that much over the decades. But his mother, Sadie, and his father, Myron, were a Jewish couple who actually were. I'd say lower middle class, right? Dad was a shoe clerk and mom was actually, quote, an exotic dancer. And they were trying to have a family in a, in a suburban area of sort of middle, lower class. His childhood was really interrupted, let's say, first by not only financial struggles, but by divorce. So, the parents didn't really get along terribly well. Do we know anything about the quality of their relationship and, and the impact on, at the time, little Lenny?
3: This is one of the problems with Lenny Bruce is that he wrote a autobiography with Paul Krasner and then there was a biography written about him which contradicts some of the things he wrote in his autobiography. So there's a little bit of, it's not exactly, but we do know this, we do know that we call, we're going to call her Sally as the mom because that was her stage name. And Mickey was the dad, the podiatrist who wanted to also be a pharmacist and shoe salesman slash podiatrist. And yes, they didn't get along well and got divorced when Lenny was five years old.
2: And that's important for people just to understand in terms of what we're always talking about and trying to understand what is formative. In a young person's life, there's always the biology going into understanding a person's character and the struggles that they might have. But there's also early life, often trauma, that can shape that. And in the case of certainly there were divorces that did happen even in the 1920s, but not a huge number, not like you know, started occurring in, let's say, the 70s, 80s. But divorce did happen and it was disruptive and it was difficult on children. It still remains difficult on children. And in addition to that, there's often real financial struggle that's increased when divorce happens. And that certainly was the case for Lenny Bruce. And it really impacted his growing up in that his mother, who essentially was the one who ended up with custody, right? The father really kind of disappeared.
3: That is not true. That is, I, I, Initially, she did. And then according to Lenny's daughter, Kitty, that at one point she was like, I can't handle this kid by myself. And the dad who was going, went up to Boston to, be, to do pharmacy school. He came back and took con- basic control of Lenny's life because in a weird way, Sally seems like never wanted to be a mom. Like, the her, the whole relationship, from what I understand, was much more of, like, brother, sister, buddies, than I want the responsibility of being a mom. So the dad comes back. They kind of, like, she's in Valley Stream now. She's not an exotic dancer at this point. She's just teaching classes, and she's also a bartender, and also a maid. This is Depression era. This is 1930, 31. So you could see why she maybe didn't want to have to deal with this kid.
2: She's struggling just to make ends meet and feed herself.
3: Right. According to Lenny in his book, he claims that at one point when he was with her, they were on relief. They were getting welfare checks. So he was like this kid in the neighborhood. It was kind of like everyone knew they were on welfare and with his mom, and then eventually she can't handle him, and he takes him back in and also remarries. And so he has a stepmom at this point.
2: And, you know, we know that that can go well or that can go poorly. I mean, so a stepmom can be a great influence if she's nurturing and caretaking.
3: Well, this is the thing her name is Dorothy, and she actually had a job. She was a court stenographer, so she worked every day and he worked every day. So it was basically this lonely kid in the house. And if I can quote Kitty Bruce again, she said that Lenny didn't get a lot of attention as a kid.
2: So he was, he was essentially, I mean, you're describing a latchkey kid, right? A latchkey kid who has to take care of himself and for himself. I gather there were at times other family members involved. He was passed around a bit sometimes, right? To aunts, uncles, grandparents.
3: Well, there's this, this story of this other couple, this, that lived on a farm and they apparently took him in for a couple years, but then later we find out that he might have just been working there during the summers and stuff. But this is the thing is he started out, he was an excellent student in school, like super smart. And then as he got older, he became started acting out more and went from being an excellent student to a poor student. One biography says that he was held back a year. So whatever that humiliation was, And then, of course, another biography says that he was very much spoiled by his dad because they now had a two income family between the two. And so I don't know if his dad felt guilty about it.
2: So that's interesting because the early good performance in school speaks to intelligence that later we certainly have lots of evidence for. And, you know, in terms of quick wit and deep thought and creativity, But the fact that actually his performance got worse and very much linked to, as you said, acting out, you have to wonder, you know, was there any sort of academic problem, though we have no evidence of that? Or was all of this family tumult, really? And uh, I guess the question of stable support in terms of, you know, is somebody home? Can somebody help you? Can somebody cook for you? Can somebody take care of you? You know, had an impact such that ultimately he drops out of high school.
3: Right. But he drops out of high school to join the Navy, which is something a lot of kids at that time. I know everyone like graduates high school. Well, not everyone, but that's sort of the path to success in this country. But back then in the 30s, maybe half the country graduated high school. So it wasn't. And you could get a high school diploma if you joined the service at that time. So that's what he opted to do. He later kind of regretted that. I assume the dad said, you probably want to go to college because you're a smart kid. And he didn't. He was just rebellious. He was like, let me get out of Long Island and see the world. And, this, you know, unfortunately, there was, was a war going on. So he saw some actually action in, in Italy, I believe.
2: He did. But even before then, in terms of his adolescence, which is a really formative and important time, and as you said, you know, he was already pretty rebellious, but so were many of his peers. In other words, adolescence is a rebellious time already. And he was kind of in that milieu of the lower middle class Brooklyn set where being rebellious and particularly anti-authoritarian was... Prominent for adolescents, at least for teenagers at that time. And so that he would have, you know, joined in that or been part of that and being even developmentally driven to that isn't surprising. And that's why is that important? That is important because later, when you listen to and look at a lot of his comedy, a lot of what you hear, you could be listening to the thoughts of a rebellious, anti authoritarian adolescent, quite honestly. And the world becomes the man, but in, you know, as a youth, he was already sort of thinking that way and partaking of that as he left high school, as you point out, and joined. And what's so fascinating is joins the Navy, which is the man. I mean the man in spades. Yeah, that's the the Navy is a big authoritarian figure. It was the end of World War II. He does join and as you as you mentioned, he does see action in Africa, in Italy. He's on the USS Brooklyn he doesn't like it and that's not surprising. I mean, not so he doesn't like it more than the average soldier doesn't like it. He doesn't like being a soldier and listening to authority and having to follow rules in the way that maybe one doesn't like school or you know one is rebellious and anti-authoritarian and and that that is important because that thematically is there, from his youth and continues into his young adulthood. So much so that he apparently, he does some sort of routine on the ship to entertain
3: others. Right. Can I interrupt and read you a letter he writes his dad? This is, he writes to Mickey while in the Navy. Dear father, I would truly give all my worldly possessions to spend a few hours with you now. So he's on the ship. He's dealing with the man. He's having to scrub whatever. You know, the way the service works. I know you'll say, quote, I told you so. All right. But I'm kicking my rear section for not continuing my education. How is Dorothy? That's the stepmom. You know, father, as a young, chronologically speaking, as I am, as young as I am, I feel mentally superior to most of my associates. I don't say this boastfully, but I attribute the fact to the rather strained and intelligent surroundings I had growing up, Your loving son, your loving son, Lenny. So I think that's a little insight into what was going on at that time, that he probably was like, "I'm not even going to listen to you, Dad. You want me to go to continue my education. I know what I'm doing. I'm going into the Navy. And this kind of backfires on him. Would you say that's an accurate reading of that letter? It
2: certainly does sound that way. He found out that one man can be worse than another man, (laughs) the the man's. But also, interestingly, on the ship, he is purported to have performed some sort of uh, cross-dressing kind of entertainment for the other soldiers. Interesting, because Already, and it's not surprising. Even though his mother was now perhaps teaching dance and bartending and doing other things, her role as an exotic dancer seems to have been something that was important to her, at least of her early life. And so that he, the idea of performance, performing, uh, not foreign, the idea of making people laugh. A dan- you know, exotic dancers often went along, even at that point, with comedians or you know, comic introduction. And he does this, and it really perturbs. The, you know, Navy types that are do not want cross-dressing things happening. Right.
3: Well, can I just say this? Well, can I just because I'm sort of an expert on this? A lot of times in the Navy, in those shows, there was a lot of cross-dressing because there was not many women on the ship. So there was like when they did shows, that was a big thing. You'd put on coconuts as the bra, you know that kind of thing.
2: Well, why? Well, so then why would it? Why would it bother them?
3: No, this is what happened. <laughs> he wanted to get out of the navy, so he started cross dressing after those. Sh- Once he saw that he could do that, he started wearing that around the deck, and then that's how he gets kicked out of the navy and gets his. First was a dishonorable discharge, but then eventually got it upgraded to just like not honorable, but there's like sort of this gray area in between, because if you have a dishonorable discharge, you're not eligible for any of the GI benefits, which he eventually used to go to acting school. I think he was smart enough to go like, I got to get out of here. And this is a great way to people think that, oh, I don't care that I'm gay. Can I just loop back a little bit about Sally? Because I think she's very interesting. At age 13, while he's still living in Long Island with his dad, Sally would, you know, now starting to have her own exotic dancer show business dreams, takes Lenny to a strip club. And the the bouncer at the door is like, "Uh, you can't come here with the 13-year-old kid. I don't know what you're doing. She's like, why? He's not allowed to see a naked body? And so she brings him into the strip club. And Lenny has always, and Sally, I think by extension, obviously, has been very free, as they call it, about sexuality and talking about any kind of sexuality. There was no humiliation. There was no embarrassment. There was none of the usual things that like I would have in my life just talking about whatever the the most explicit thing was all kind of funny to him he was and obviously he had this famous line he was like if you think a naked human body is dirty then you have a problem with the manufacturer which is God right so that's basically what he's, he's like I don't know why you're so upset about this this is God's creation So the
2: idea to him of telling the people in the Navy, hey, I think I'm having a lot of homosexual thoughts, so I probably don't belong here as a vehicle, wouldn't have been a problem for him. That would have fit right in.
3: Not not in the least. He didn't care. None of that stuff mattered to him at all. So he was very uh, whatever, enlightened or loose in that in that regard. And so during the Navy years, most young men are now in the service. So there is now a demand for comedians and MCs and dancers, and that's how Sally gets into bigger time. I'm I gonna say bigger time, more than just being a dance teacher. She's now a performer and kind of like MC, kind of comedian, funny dancer because of there's a a demand for these in these strip clubs that she's now able to get worked, and that's how she kind of got into it because of this dearth of young men who are not all fighting overseas.
2: Wow. So that is fascinating. And it does explain later, we'll talk about sort of their even teaming up here and there for or her attempt to team them up to bring Lenny along and to help him have employment. So in that sense, she she was certainly an influence on him.
3: Oh, no question. But she again, it was not, it was again a brother sister relationship. Like I've heard it described from so many people as that. As opposed, they wanted to be buddies. They wanted to talk about naked girls and things and getting laid and all of that. That was their relationship, not a mother-son thing.
2: Let me just say from an Oedipal perspective, being a buddy that you talk about sex with your mom when you're a son, it sounds, you know, on the one hand, the way we're talking about it, people might think, oh, that sounds very liberating. And certainly it's great to not be inhibiting of your son's sexuality, whatever it might be. But there is a, a boundary one can cross such that it, it it starts to feel almost incestuous and potentially even, you know, uncomfortably guilt producing for a boy who's an adolescent who's starting to have his own, you know, sexual feelings, et cetera. And your mother brings you to a club where she's going to be mostly unclothed and other women are going to be mostly unclothed. You're gonna be talking about unclothed women. And I only bring that up because Lenny, was, as we'll go on to discuss, not terribly successful in his future love life. I mean, in the sense that there was tremendous tumult and strife, let's say, a, a lot of chaos and emotional explosion in his future love relationships. And having this unusual, not incestuous, like truly incest, I mean, but but in terms of thought and fantasy and talk and behavioral exposure, an unusual relationship with his mom.
3: Well, I mean, obviously, when we get to the point of the woman he eventually marries and has a daughter with, we'll see how that all plays out.
2: Exactly. Exactly. But before we get there. okay. so before we get there, he has certainly relationships of some sort with his parents. He leaves the Navy. He says, hey, dad, you were right about certain things. I regret it. But he comes home and there there he doesn't really have I mean, he doesn't really have a vocation, right? He doesn't really have things he can do. He joins the Merchant Marines.
3: No, no, no. You're, I think you're You're missing a big point. <laughs> you're missing a big... He comes home, briefly goes to California. I think his dad might have moved to California at that point. I'm not sure. But uh, later, his dad definitely moves to California and then goes back to New York. And that's when he hooks up with his mom. And she's like, I can get you a job in Brooklyn as, a, you know, I need you to take over this... My one spot, he goes on stage, kind of like this funny Lenny, and goes on stage because he can do impressions. And I just want to say something very important, that a big part of Lenny's imagination came from being alone all those years in Long Island and would listen to the radio. That was his big thing. So he loved listening to like adventure shows and that Jack Armstrong All-American. So he had a very kind of vivid imagination about show business and in particular, voices and impressions, which we'll talk about. It's very important to his career. So he was like kind of a radio-based comedian and also he loved these big Hollywood movies. So he was like, that was his escape, was radio and the movies. So she brings him to the strip club, he emcees like, Oh, I think I could do this. I've seen, you know, remember when he went to that strip club at age 13 at the strip club was a comedian who later became famous named red buttons. And so he's like, Oh, a comedian is part of this world. Part of this world that some people would think is the degenerate lowest part of society, which is just like men who are married coming in to watch Naked Women. Like, just like, the the obviously hypocrisy of it. So that's how he starts his show business career in these strip clubs. This is way before the Merchant Marine. And he becomes like a young comedian on the scene. And if I, and this might be a little comedy nerdy, starts hanging out at this famous coffee shop in Manhattan called Hanson's, which is where all the young comedians who wanted to be, on Broadway or in nightclubs or would hang out because the agents for comedians was above this coffee shop. So he was part of that Hanson's world. And that's where he kind of developed his sort of Lenny Bruce stick. There was a famous legendary guy there named Joe Ansis who talked in this jazzy, Yiddishy kind of style that Lenny supposedly adapted a lot, according to Albert Goldman, who wrote this biography called Ladies and Gentlemen, Lenny Bruce. And that's how he got his kind of like jazzy improvisational style. So
2: that was Joe started with the stream of consciousness. That was his that was his thing, stream of consciousness.
3: Well, Joe was also intellectual. So if you really think about Lenny, it's like he's doing very intellectual. He's doing like high and low at the same time. So he's doing like he's talking about very base things about you know, and then and very lofty ideas about hypocrisy, politics and things like that. But at that time at Hanson's, he was just basically an impressionist and he gets to go on what was kind of a America's Got Talent show called Arthur Godfrey's Talent Scouts and wins. That
2: was the big, that was the big moment. That well, was the moment. He, he won that. that.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is before the Merchant Marine and all of that. So he, so
2: when in winning that, He was noticed. Right. That was that was seen by many people, including even talent recruiters, et cetera. Right.
3: Yeah. He got a booking at the Strand right away. He got an agent. He was so he was he was on the rung. He was a rung on. He was making money, not a lot, but he was and he was doing a very traditional. If you watch, I mean, there's footage of that Lenny of that talent scouts and there's it was also broadcast on radio that at the time there's something called simulcasting. This is early. This is 1949. Right. So he he does impressions, but they're sort of a next level impression. It's like a German guy doing an impression of Humphrey Bogart or Jimmy Stewart or something like that. So it's like another that was his shtick. That was his shtick.
2: Let's take a quick break here. We'll be back in a moment.
0: As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner.
1: Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it!
0: Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you
3: share it with. So you write the books, Jin, and Vlastar runs the business. I understand now, it's a wise man Marie marries a wiser woman.
0: Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more.
2: And was he at this point moving into what I think has kind of been referred to as the Spritz? The satires that spiraled into like total disinhibition, you know, was he? No, was, no. no. He was, so he's none a of that very stuff was traditional happening. Traditional
3: comedian who's like, oh, I know, I'm working in strip clubs, you know, and now I'm starting to work in like these little nightclub gigs. And his big debut at the Strand didn't go well, and so he's uh he gets a gig in Baltimore, and that's where he meets this stripper. Is there anything else we want to talk about these, the, uh, the night, the early nightclub years, the impressionist years of his, this is before he was dirty Lenny. This is before any of this stuff. And a matter of fact, he was on a, you know, the tonight show on NBC yeah. before the tonight show, there was something called Broadway open house and he was on there and he's there with buddy Hackett. And they're doing like sketches and stuff. So he's part of that group of young comics.
2: So at that point, he seems sort of on the straight and narrow, if you will, in terms of no question, right? No question. Doing what they're all trying to do.
3: But he's not making a lot of money. And this is I mean, if there was one question I would like. I mean, there's a million questions I'd like to ask him. But it was like, why did you like you were doing all right? You were doing these little clubs. Why did you want to join the Merchant Marine? Was it just to make some money? And he obviously didn't have a great time in the Navy. So there's
2: no evidence to really suggest why he would do that, except to say that the importance for him, and I'm, I'm conjecturing here because I can't speak to him and I have not spoken to him, but the importance of being in some sort of loggerheads with authority in some way, which really was early on in his life. And, you know, he goes back and forth. I'm, I'm having a fight with you and I put you down. And then maybe he retreats from that at certain points. But that but that theme of being anti-authoritarian and wanting to be in a fight about it, you can point to episodes from early life really all the way through to the end where tragically, you know, we know. I know. I
3: think it's a little more nuanced than that as I've looked back on it, Mm -hmm. because even his the guy who did uh, Robert White, who did an incredible biography, I mean, documentary about him said that, like, in a way, Lenny Bruce was, there was a conservative side to Lenny Bruce. He wasn't, like, when he got arrested and he wasn't like, oh, the pigs or these horrible things, he call them peace officers. He really thought, he believed in the justice system. He thought, like, oh, all I need to do is stand. I mean, I'm jumping ahead, but he, like, so I don't know if it always was, like, F you to the system. I think his big thing was, like, Guys, we got to stop being hypocritical, especially about religion and politics and sexuality and race. We just have to stop. We just have to tell the truth. So I think he was more of a truth seeker than like, oh, let me uproot the apple cart. And this is terrible and burn down the city. I don't think he was that at all.
2: But the wish to be part of some sort of authority in a way that worked for him you know, the wish to be with his dad or the wish to be, I mean, he joined the Navy, but then when it wasn't what he thought it would be, right, he had no problem telling them, I have gay thoughts, you know, I guess what I'm saying is it's not all one way. You're right. It's its a conflict, right? I want to be with you, but at the end of the day, I'm going to chafe under your, what I see as capricious rules or disappointing rules or whatever, you know, whatever, maybe went wrong because, of course, it is baffling, right? He did everything he could to get out of the Navy, and it, but then goes back to the Merchant Marines. But he
3: eventually quits. He doesn't
2: stay very long yeah, there. He quits, he he quits the long. Merchant
3: Marines because he also was sending notes to this stripper named Honey who lived now, I think, in Miami and was like, I, I think I want to marry you. Like, he was smitten by her. Like, and I think.
2: So that we we can say that's pretty that seems like a pretty overdetermined choice <laughs> um, to to choose uh, an exotic dancer right, right? a stripper right. Um, like his mother and at the same time interestingly right he certainly could have uh, maybe we could say he could have had his pick of strippers like he he was exposed to many Looked
3: right through to exotic the dancers. Lenny Bruce had no problem meeting and sleeping with women like he was very charming. He could like really lock in. He just was he was smart. He it was like that was never a problem. He was just smitten by this woman. And like I said earlier, like the conservatives like, oh, I want to marry her. Not let's live together, like let's get married, like this is the one. That's pretty strong for somebody like that, right?
2: It It is strong. It is strong. But, you know, if you want to speak to some sort of conflict around walking the walking the the family man, the authority line, though, you know, the 1950s, the way it's supposed to be versus not marriage would be, you know, people didn't really, I, I mean, shacking up was done, but it wasn't a big thing. It was, it was definitely choosing the more degenerate life if you were shacking up, right? As opposed to the white picket fence idea of, of getting married and really getting married. That's what his exotic mother Did. Exotic dancer mother did, right?
3: Right. And I just want to say, I feel like Sally's act wasn't full-on, like, stripper exotic. I think it was, like, a comedic take on kind of funny dance. Just so I just feel like it's not like, oh, she was... Also just a stripper.
2: But Honey Harlow was a stripper. No question about that, right? And they married, but it does sound like it was an incredibly turbulent (laughs)
3: relationship. Yeah, because... Yeah, there was, you know, drugs were starting to get involved with that. And she had already had a drug arrest. And so it was, but they end up moving to California to pursue. Lenny's now has dreams. They go out, they stay with the dad and Dorothy on their chicken farm. And at one point, according to honey, the dad says, all right, Uh, This show business is great. You did, uh, you know, you can do this. But why don't you come in with me on this chicken farm? And he's like, okay, I cannot do the chicken farm. So I am going to, uh, I think I want to write movies and act in movies and like try to, I'm here in Hollywood. Let me do that. And then in the meantime, they would maybe do an act together, he and Honey, because she was like this very, you be- incredibly beautiful girl I was like oh we could do like a two-person act a little bit so that's how he started in hollywood and basically lived in los angeles the rest of his life until he died in 1966
2: so he did he did he wrote screenplays right he i mean nothing became a blockbuster i mean nothing that made him all in that regard a, a lot of money that's not where he made his money but he did write screenplays
3: and he did try to act and he did and he ends up like making these low budge movies and you can see he's in them and honey is in them and even his mom sally is in them so it's all the whole he is trying to like get a foot but that's that's what's happening in hollywood
2: and they do they have a child uh, a baby girl kitty who it seems that honey is not really terribly interested in or cut out for motherhood so much.
3: That's in 1955. Right. In 1955, Kitty is born. And according to comedian Shecky Green, Lenny was a little overwhelmed with her and asked Shecky to adopt her. So, again, these are comedians. I don't know if he's making it up. I don't know. Who knows? But it seems possible. So this is all out in Los Angeles. Happening. You
2: know, one thing that becomes very difficult in evaluating Lenny, at Lenny at this point, he is Lenny Bruce. He's been Lenny Bruce. Evaluating his character and evaluating any psychiatric issues that may have come to bear is that once substance abuse starts, it can explain so much and it can mask so much and it makes it really difficult to speak of other things. We might speak of some other things and there certainly may have been other things there, but he uses heroin. He uses meth. He uses dilaudid. These are powerful substances that are highly addictive. And once you've really started, it's incredibly difficult to stop without serious ongoing treatment. And when your partner honey is also using it's also incredibly you know that much more difficult and moreover when you are traveling in a crowd where everybody is using you know, it's almost impossible. I mean, I'm always asked about this celebrity did, you know, what could they be doing? And, you know, the tragedy is sort of not being a celebrity anymore, you know, not, or not being with the people of their craft anymore, because when it's around you all the time and everybody is using, it's it's almost impossible to not use.
3: Well, let me tell you what, I mean, yes, that's exactly correct. What happens in Hollywood? He's trying to make these low budge movies. He's trying to be right. He does write one low budget movie. And, He's having a has this baby daughter and then they are about to split up soon. She's going to uh, end up going back to jail because of a parole violation.
2: Well, sadly, she was she was actually initially put in jail right for a marijuana uh, possession violation from Hawaii and, you know, was really was sentenced to like two years for, for marijuana.
3: I know, but that was because she had broke her parole on a previous drug charge. It wasn't just for marijuana so he starts working at these two clubs one is called strip city which is not about a mile from my house where i'm sitting right here and another club called duffy's gaiety and like you said exactly what you said he is like this is a strip club but they have really good jazz musicians playing for these strippers and these jazz musicians introduce him to heroin and all of this stuff and not only is does he love these jazz musicians and uses them in his comedy bits, but he also adopts the jazz style to comedy. So he becomes very freeform, like you were talking earlier about these, the spritz, like, the
2: total
1: disintegration. Right, right. And
3: just so he's now more, he still does impressions, but he now does so much more than that. And that's is the start of him really becoming what we think of as this, the Lenny Bruce. Guy,
2: you know it's fascinating because so the
3: drugs do help yes, him in yes. a way. Yes, it disinhibits I hate to him.
2: It. it disinhibits him. But so when you take, this is what's fascinating about talent and you know exceptional talent. Where where does that come from? Well, you know, having spent years practicing a craft, so it's not like it came out of. It's not like he started that way. You know he he did something and immersed himself in learning this craft for a and practicing it for a really long time. And then he hits a point where he is already probably a somewhat disinhibited type of person and and obviously a creative person in terms of figuring his way in life. But now, as you point out, he gets more disinhibited by this drug use. And culturally at the time, what's around him to absorb jazz, a highly creative, unstructured, disinhibited form of music. And incorporating that, right, is highly original, It's super innovative. And he innovates. He really, you know, and that, of course, you know, we're talking about one of the top ranked comedians of all time, of all time. And when you.
3: Right. But not not at this point. He's just a strip club comedian at this point. But
2: why does he become that?
3: Within four years, yes. he's playing Carnegie Hall. Right.
2: So. So how does that happen? You know, whenever we're I mean, on, on this Podcast. I'm often trying to choose subjects who we, we we say, "Wow, that person was a genius and an icon in the sense that they created something in their field that didn't exist before." And Lenny Bruce really exemplifies that. And where does that come from? The ability to innovate something that didn't exist before, and you know, it is often a perfect storm. And in his case, the perfect storm of the practice and therefore having accrued the talent the impact of the environment around you and there being something in the environment that you pick up on and can use creatively. So he had something inside and something outside. And in that Venn diagram of the two, right, he creates this new area of comedy.
3: Right. And also he's hitting it at the right time, which is just when these small clubs is the new breeding ground for comedians as opposed to vaudeville or the Borscht belt like he is here and especially in in San Francisco with Mort Saul and Jonathan Winters and there's just kind of a new wave of comedians that are embraced and also shunned by mainstream and he's one of those torchbearers in fact they were called, believe it or not, they were called the sick comedians of that time, and there's a whole article in Time Magazine that called about the sick And believe it or not, it's not only uh, Shelley Berman and Lenny Bruce, but it's also Bob Newhart who couldn't that be more. That they were
2: also kind of the beginning of that mesh of comedy and satire. That they were satirists.
3: Right. Exactly. Exactly. There was very rare, rarely. Yes, Will Rogers certainly made political jokes, but These comedians made fun of the political system and Lenny Bruce in particular made fun of not only the political system, not in a liberal conservative kind of way, just in the hypocrisy kind of way, but really his real target, one of his real targets was hypocrisy, especially in religion.
2: religion, because really what he went after, it,
3: which is what we'll talk about right. later gets him into a lot of,
2: right. Trouble. right. That, that was the beginning of, of the serious trouble for him. Criminally speaking, I guess I'll say, but he really went after institutions that, you know, religion was a big one, but it was, it was the idea. And again, I, I, I don't want to sound like a broker record, but to go back to this conflict about authority, not authority, you know, the, uh, for him, his comedy was a satire on institutions and the idea that institutions are like the shingle man you know that 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 you go after because they're selling you something and it oh of course right and it and it's probably
3: he thought it was all a hustle he right it's the all whole hustle, thing was right. a hustle so and right. he
2: also and this is kind of fascinating intellectually interesting that he in that sense, became like a cultural anthropologist, right? Like exploring and digging up and trying to understand how things came to be, what purpose they're serving for humanity. And does that really make any sense for us? And that was something also very new for comedy, very new
3: for comedy. No question. No question. And he wasn't the only one, but he was especially, and he also started using language. And at this point in society, There's a whole kind of debate on how acceptable language was going to be. I mean, obviously, there's the Allen Ginsberg poems and these uh, more Tennessee Williams plays. And they're like, comedians were like, we would like to have the freedom to use language to express these ideas. So that was that was the debate that was going on kind of at that time.
2: But people loved it. Loved it. I mean, they really. Not
3: everyone. But let me just say it. Not everyone loved it. But in a weird way and this is a quote from the book, is like the right people liked him. The right him. people liked him. Like okay. the smart people. Like the, hipster, the, you know, the cool uh,
2: people, the hipster people, right? It
3: wasn't only the hipsters, but it was also like, uh, yeah. I mean, I know Kerouac didn't like him, but for the most part, like the smart the smart set kind of like adopted him. It's like, oh, yeah, this is what we want in our comedy. We don't need to hear what Joey Bishop is, who's not saying anything about our society.
2: So I'm just going to put a pitch in here as a, Personally, as a psychoanalyst, he was very much like a psychoanalyst in the sense that he, what he did was try to make for people what was unconscious, conscious. What they didn't realize and understand was in their minds about drives, about things they want to do, about how fantasies they had and fears they had and wishes they had. He was the voice to make those unconscious things conscious and actually psychoanalysts do this in the service of helping patients to, by doing that, unburden their guilt, remove their shame about things that all of us think and all of us have conflict about. And he was doing that on a stage in a public forum and just like psychoanalysts have had their fans and their detractors, uh, Freudians haven't done so well in, in recent decades. But he, to to a psychoanalyst, I would say he was very much in that mold. And in that sense, when allowed to, he did some, I would say, therapeutic things for society, even though he was on the verge of getting the terrible pushback from the superego ego. <laughs> from the superego of society that said this, this terrifies our moral compass and we can't have this. Uh,
3: That's interesting. I, I'm just letting that lie there. I don't know. I'm just letting that wash (laughs) over me. That might be correct. Um, (laughs) But he um, was,
2: he, as as you point out, he went on to perform Carnegie Hall at midnight to a packed house.
3: Yeah. In the middle of a snowstorm and there's a recording of it and it's great. And yeah, but again, at this point, he's still, still considers himself primarily a comedian. This is about to change, but he still considers himself primarily comedian. And he told Paul Krasner, who helped him write his autobiography, that it was like a comedian's job is to get a laugh every 15 to 25 seconds and be able to maintain that for at least 50 minutes. And then you and uh, you have to do that 18 out of every 20 shows. And that's because that's your responsibility as a comedian to the guy who booked you. Again, this kind of like work ethic kind of thing. Again, this changes. But at the time, even though he's talking about religion and talking, he's still like, I need to get laughs at this point.
2: He is actually more so raising Kitty because sadly, honey, honey is not right. around. She, they divorce. And I think she goes back jail. to
3: jail and she goes back to jail for that. And she goes back yeah, to jail. Yeah.
2: So so he is he is truly raising his little girl.
3: And this might be the point where he says to Shecky Green, can you? Yeah. Take this like, what, of, what am I like going to do? This, How this am I going to do this? Yeah. I can yeah.
2: imagine. Only can imagine what kind of a chaotic.
3: But I just think like of all the comedians we Shecky Green, was a known had a problem with alcohol. He's admitted it like out of control nightclub comedian. Like of all the people to adopt your kid, it would have been a lateral move at best.
2: He clearly expresses, you know he loves his daughter, he loves his daughter, but you know he's he's hardly in an environment that makes raising a little girl by herself very easy, and somehow he intermittently pulls that off, but he is still using drugs himself and Why don't you talk about the next phase that he moves into in terms
3: of comedy? Well, he becomes again, he releases this very popular album called The Sick Humor. Like they're going to call me the sick comedian. I'm going to brand myself as the sick comedian. like The Sick Humor of Lenny Bruce, I think, is the name of the album. And it does rather well. And he gets this cult following and he goes on primetime television and does stand up twice on the Steve Allen show. On Sunday nights, they, at that point, I think it was the 10 o'clock version of that show. So he's doing well, and he's playing. He's now moved up out of Strip City, moved up. He now plays the Crescendo. Can I just say something very interesting that he does, just to give a little insight into what Lenny was like at this time before the fall? Is uh, He had a telephone set up through the sound system at the Crescendo, which was a nightclub here in Los Angeles and would call people on the telephone. Most famously would be like, he would call like a couple would be out at the club and he was like, do you have a babysitter? So he'd call home to the babysitter and then he would tell the babysitter that, Oh, is this Lisa? Are you babysitting for the uh, Shannons? Well, unfortunately the Shannons got killed in a car accident tonight. They're both dead. Like that was his idea of like improvisational in the moment kind of thing. Again, Probably not nice to that babysitter, but just an idea of kind of what Lenny was doing as well as his other stuff. So he gets on the Steve Allen show. He has this album. He's playing the Blue Angel. And then he does this big concert in New York City. It's like he's doing really, really, doing really, really well and has kind of branded himself, branded himself as this comedian. But one of his routines he does, which is, the start of the trouble is um, it's called Religions Incorporated, where he basically says that religion is, like I said earlier, a hustle, like it's show business. And so that is kind of the start, because now he's that's the routine with the with the Pope. And then there's there's another one with Moses and Jesus come to see. Uh, yeah. Uh, the cardinal. At-
2: where, what's what's the one where? The basically in the in the voice of a of a movie mogul.
3: Oh, right, 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 right. He's trying again. Remember, we talked earlier about like he was always into show business, like movies and radio. So this is sort of like a comedic theme he uses all the time, which would he would juxtapose religion with show business, religion with an agent, religion with a a booking guy. And he would still, in a weird way, still be doing impressions, believe it or not, even though everyone thinks he stopped doing them. He would still kind of do voices and act outs.
2: To your story that you just told about, you know, I'm gonna call the babysitter and say, hey, the parents are dead. I think it, it it's indicative of a theme that he used throughout, really, but continued and actually toward the later years, which where thing he did sort of start to unravel, became very obvious, which is a lot of his comedy had really sadomasochistic themes. There was a, there was a lot of primitive fantasy stuff particularly later as he got into these scatological outbursts that he would have you know where he would say words over and over again and many of them had references to s- sort of anal stuff or you know sexual stuff or oral stuff that was pretty base he would say a word over and over again or he would would riff in a way that maybe the work to the audience the words they we weren't even clear how these words connected as like a flight of ideas, a free association. But a lot of the words and the, the jokes had a sadistic piece to them.
3: I, again, obviously, the babysitter bit is slightly sadistic in a power play. But I don't know if I totally agree with that it. it was sadistic. I think like if you're talking specifically about when he would use the N-word over and over again to shock the crowd, is that what you're talking about?
2: Telling a joke about an Avon lady who comes to your door and then your her, the lone ranger, you know, and, and his gay liaison with Tonto, let's bring in the horse, bestiality. I mean, these there were a, a lot of jokes. Yeah, no, I agree add, with you. Yeah. And again,
3: I think it all goes back to his complete lack of what is the word you were saying when therapy, shame or embarrassment. Is that what you're trying to release people from? Mm. Yes. Shame and guilt, yes, and guilt. You're like he didn't have any of them, so he could say any kind of swear word or the things that were like. They believe me; those words were said in nightclubs, but not in the context of. Oh, I'm going to literally challenge your basic belief system in God. Like, like that's a pretty bold move for a comedian to do on stage when your job is. Get a laugh every 25 seconds. That's your job is to get laughs. So now he's like, oh, I'm going to take your belief system and tear it down and ridicule it. And people are like, people either loved it or like, "Um, I'm here to laugh with my girl. I'm on a date. I'm trying to, you know, make this girl like me. What, what, What are we listening to here?
2: Well, let me just say, you know, by the way, sadomasochism is a part of everyone's human nature. Some just have more than others. And I'm really just saying, I think in his disinhibition, you got a good look at his sadomasochistic urges and they were they were pretty impressive.
3: Right. And I don't know, I'm going to just say to you, I don't know psychologically, but I just feel like his thing was more about just being free and allowing people like, look, if this is part of humanity and if you believe God created humans, God created this. God created my ability to make fun of bestiality or homosexuality. It's interesting. I'm just, I'm just, this is all kind of washing over me. So I, but what happens next is, in a weird way, it's partially due to the election of John Kennedy. In a weird way, because now for the first time, Catholics have a guy. He's the first Catholic president. It was a big thing during the election. And a lot of these police forces are starting to think, oh, there are basically a lot of Irish guys on this police force in in major cities. And so, believe it or not, in 1961, months after Kennedy is sworn in, he gets arrested in San Francisco. And again, this is a local arrest. I'm not saying the Kennedy Justice Department had anything to do with it, but in San Francisco for saying a 10 letter word, which describes a certain act of oral pleasure, I guess is the way I would say it on your podcast. And that's his first arrest for saying a word, dirty word on stage. And that is the literally the start of the second, I mean, maybe probably the third act and the fall of Lenny Bruce is, and it's so ironic that it is in maybe the, one of the most liberal cities in the country. And this, the jazz workshop where it happened is right around the corner from the bookstore that was sued for publishing Howl. Like, it's like, it's, that's where the free speech movement takes place several years later. And that's where he gets arrested for saying this word. Ultimately goes to trial. I think loses the trial, but then wins on appeal or something. Basically win. But this is the first time he's been arrested for a word crime.
2: It's so interesting. Why? Why Lenny Bruce? Does it have anything to do with like he's a Jewish guy in a in a time when it wasn't
3: making fun of Catholics? Yes, making fun of
2: Catholics, not not a popular time to be a Jew. Um, And well, when is it a popular time to be a Jew, but not a popular time to be a Jew and certainly making fun of Catholics. Was that really the crux of why? Because certainly lots of guys were saying these words, as you point out. This was just not at that point. There were other people doing what he was doing. And he hadn't yet made his Jackie Kennedy running away, you know, on the hood of the car comment yet, which definitely, (laughs) definitely put him over the edge. And you could see why they might have gone after him for that. But it's even before then.
3: It was just I again, I think it was just there was look, comedians. Usually, and entertainers, there were local laws. And this was at the time that you couldn't say something obscene on stage. And so it all came down to the definition of what obscene meant. And there was a Supreme Court ruling earlier about pornography and what that means. And so we were just kind of figuring it out. Look, comedians had been arrested before. Comedians have been, you know, but never, I I will say, I just want to loop back way early in comedy to a comedian named Mae West who did a show on Broadway and was not only arrested, spent 10 days in jail. That's something that never happened to Lenny Bruce. So just as a society, I think Lenny Bruce was like, the fact you're arresting me proves my point. That we can't, it's not like people were complaining in the club to the local cops, I can't believe what just happened. I took my daughter to the show. and she, Nobody was complaining. These were adults paying money to see this guy. And he said this word, 10-letter word. And then he was arrested after the show. And that was the start of it. It's just, it's still t- today. I'm still baffled at just the manpower <laughs> to just go through all of this for that crime saying those words. Let's
2: take a quick break here. We'll be back in a moment.
0: Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council.
2: You know, there are some people who have talked about, you know, well, in those last years, did, did Lenny Bruce, was he paranoid of all of this going on? When people are actually out to get you, then you can't call the victim paranoid. I just want to say that as a psychiatrist, you cannot say that. And and in fact, between uh, busts for drug use, which was also he was also being ar- arrested, right. and that they were also going looking on, for yeah. him because they now knew that he was using drugs, and his wife, his ex wife, was using drugs, and she'd already been arrested. And between that and knowing that he was not going to tone down his act from experience, they were in fact, they I mean, what happened to him, sadly, in the last years is financially. He was ruined in trying to keep himself out of jail, and they squeezed the nightclub managers, uh, trying to have him not be hired, so that he that is true. That is a great point,
3: Gail. That's an awesome point that they started arresting. They they started arresting those nightclub guys, and
2: then they couldn't hire him, so he could no longer even keep the the funds that he would need to mount his defense. And probably continuous drug habit, which means he probably intermittently, you know, really went through withdrawal. And this combination of substance abuse, trying to have money for substances, people actually being out to get you, truly, and denying you the ability to make a living, that's a full plate of a lot of trauma, not surprising that someone would unravel in those circumstances. Right. And- I
3: mean, there's this, even before his death, there was this incredible story of him falling out of a fourth story window and breaking like both of his legs. Like, did he jump? Was he pushed? Was he staggering out? Cause of, like no one, like and everyone who talks about him at this point is talks about that it was just sad that he didn't have his comedic chops. And again, I assume this was exactly what you said, a combination of, oh, these are my paranoid fantasies coming true, so they're not fantasies at all, and my drug abuse. And I don't know, it was just a very sad (laughs) ending, and it's just incredible, like all for saying words on stage. And let me ask you this, and what you think about this. The cities he gets arrested in are San Francisco, then Chicago at the gate of horn, then Los Angeles. And then the final one, the big one, the big trial, New York City in Greenwich Village. What do you think of that?
2: The fact that these were all actually liberal places that (laughs) that
3: couldn't have been more. Yeah, couldn't couldn't have been more liberal because within it's not like he was arrested in, uh, you know, Green Bay, Wisconsin, because of the local uh, laws. Well, it really
2: exemplified the fight that was going on in this country within those liberal cities and everywhere. Right. In other words, those liberal cities were in the minds of the conservatives there, you know, dens of inequity that needed to be reined in. He was a representative (laughs) of the fight that was really going on, the cultural argument that was happening at that time about the morality of Americans, the morality of our soul, what constitutes art. There are stories similar to Lenny Bruce's amongst artists in different areas of the arts, but it does seem hard to believe that it could only happen in those cities. But that's where artists and performers did their thing. That's where the best of the people were,
3: I guess. I mean, it's. But it, But as you point out, the police I mean, force I mean, was Irish know Catholic. That when he, <laughs> right, right. The police force was. And now, obviously, there was that great quote of when he goes in for an arraignment to the or in front of the judge and the jury. It's Ash Wednesday. And the judge has ash on his forehead and every juror has that. was like, OK, I don't even have a chance here. Like it was. yeah. So talk so, about,
2: you know, sometimes. Right. Sometimes paranoids really do have enemies is it was a was was clearly. But on the he wall was paranoid. Him. And
3: also he felt like the court stenographers weren't completely telling the truth. And so he would record trials as well. But his whole thing was like and this is, I, this is so heartbreaking to talk about. What happened was the cop would do a transcription of his act and then the cop would do that act for the judge. So he's like, I'm not. And Blaine Bridge like, yeah, he's terrible. He's not even doing it. First of all, he's misquoting me. And second of all, he's not even doing it correctly. Can I just do my act for you, judge? And I'll show you. And they wouldn't let him do it. And they wouldn't let him do it in New York. I know they let him do it in one trial. And he was like, you would see that you would see that I have there is some social redeeming quality to this material that I'm presenting, as opposed to I'm just an obscene person who's trying to appeal to purient. Is that a word? Right.
2: Purient. That that was that was exactly purient the word interest that was of a this word. audience. It was the judge saying to the jury, if you find this sexually stimulating, if you are turned on at all by listening to this, then he is guilty. That that was the fascinating, right? What is purity? That's the obscene. Two, that's the definition. D- obscene, that's that's right. the definition. That was the how definition we got at off at the time.
3: That's how he got off in San Francisco because the all of the juries were like, yeah, this is horrible. I don't want this in my town, but I'm not getting turned on. I'm not getting on turned on. This.
2: Exactly. But for the, let's say for the betterment of society or for the creation of the field, he really pioneered the speaking the unspeakable and making that something that we should be able to all have access to, that there shouldn't be unspeakables. And that primitive fantasy is something that one should get to entertain in one's mind. It doesn't mean you're gonna do it, you know, and that that that, that is also an important thing for people to be able to have. But sadly, I, I think probably the kinds of attacks that he faced and the stresses that he faced probably only served to increase his drug use, substance use, is often an escape, right? An escape from, you know, misery, from, you know, terrible stresses. And of course, if you're already addicted, you're only going to use more. By the later parts, his you see his later acts. Uh, it's hard to even call them artistic or comedic. Uh, uh, they, I know. They sort Can of-
3: I, all of this is heartbreaking to talk about. But remember, he told Paul Krasner, like, a comedian's job is to get a laugh every time 15 to 25 seconds, over 50 minutes. And Paul says so. And he goes, well, I just saw your rambling act here about, you know, we would read court transcripts. You're not doing that anymore. He goes, oh, yeah, I'm I'm not a comedian. I'm Lenny Bruce. Right.
2: That was very famous, uh, famous quote, famous moment.
3: Yes. The name of a play. Yeah. Now. Yeah. He saw
2: himself as his own category. And he really he was at that point his own category. Yeah. <laughs> it was his own category.
3: That would be awesome to be your own <laughs> category. Ta-
2: ta- talent, a person. You know, he was only forty when he died of an overdose. He leaves no word that this was intentional in any sort of way. So we we were sort of left to have to believe that this was not a suicide per se, but was an overdose. But I think it is important for people to understand that today we understand, something that wasn't understood then, that this would have been categorized as what we're now calling a death of despair, that suicides and drug overdoses that have a lot to do with ongoing use that's probably somewhat self-medicating in a highly stressful, traumatic, and basically despair-filled situation might not have had the purposeful intent to die, but isn't so far off from suicide in the sense that one has caused one's death because one is in a state of despair. And I think it, it's pretty obvious that Lenny Bruce was in a state of despair at at the time. That yeah, he died. I would say
3: obviously, obviously, I mean, you take away someone's ability to earn a living and he and he still had a you know, he was on appeal of a guilty verdict in New York City. It was not overturned until years after his death by George Pataki, if I'm not mistaken. He was
2: sentenced to four months. He still was
3: trying to fight this trial. He was
2: going to go to jail. He was sentenced to four months. He died before his appeal. So there seems to be some controversy about whether, you know, the police purposefully tried to humiliate him, even in death, to try to diminish his uh, stature or people who might have appreciated him or lauded him in any way. And it does seem as though that were the case.
3: Supposedly, there's a bunch of photographs that um, Phil Spector, the producer, bought up from the cops. But even with that, whether that's true or not, I think that's true, that definitely there's newsreel footage of the dead body on the floor naked You know, I don't know if I can actually see the needle in his arm or the needle near his arm, but it's it's pretty graphic, something you would not see in any other Elvis's death or anything. You might see somebody on the stretcher or in the morgue. Somebody might get a picture. But like right there at the crime scene, that was they were like, here's your anti-Catholic hero, guys.
2: Some people really had idealized Lenny Bruce for what he'd created and how he had Peeled away the curtain and let people look behind the curtain, and clearly there was an attempt to dehumanize him and vilify him in death, in a way that would would puncture that idealization by taking such a such a picture that was horrific for anyone to see. I mean, horrific and horrific for his daughter, who you know who has done amazing things in adulthood to appreciate and keep the memory of her father alive and do things and actually create a foundation around substance abuse and use for people in who are entertainers and particularly comedians. It It is not unusual, I'm sure you will attest to this, for comedians to struggle with depression or different mood issues. Um, and humor is, well... One of the most advanced and intellectual of defense mechanisms we talk about in my field in terms of managing difficult emotions like depression and substance abuse is not unusual in people who... Struggle with with mood issues, so he, in some ways, was not unusual in the kinds of things, kinds of struggles that he had in people that are drawn to comedy in the first place.
3: Right, but not all comedians. I mean, I feel like it's a little bit of a cliche. Yeah, right? I mean, it's very. There's a lot of well balanced, very healthy comedians.
2: Absolutely, like I said, humor is a fabulous and and highly intellectual defense mechanism, which which many people use.
3: Right. So it goes back to him being a smart, but he knew, I think he knew he was smart, obviously, in that letter he wrote to his dad from, thing. he was like, I'm smarter than all these guys. I'm hanging out here. I gotta, I gotta be doing something different. I have a dream of working in strip clubs. As you, as you
2: mentioned, George Pataki, Governor Pataki, posthumously pardoned him in 2003. That's never, I mean, what, you know, well, too late, but a recognition, <laughs> a recognition that the idea that one would be for word,
3: literally, I just keep going back to word crime. It was a word crime. That was his crime. In New York City, in Greenwich Village, at the Cafe ogogo I mean, it seems so absurd. In
2: 2020, pretty hard for us to
3: conceive of such a well, thing. Well, this is the great thing about Lenny Bruce. This is the great thing about it. And again, Lenny Bruce's comedy, check it out if you want. Some of it is written, like we said earlier, in a very, performing a very jazzy, John Coltraney kind of style that is maybe hard to connect with. But he certainly opened the floodgates. He has
2: six albums, six albums.
3: Right, yeah. And there's a lot of bootleg stuff. There's just a lot of great stuff about him. And you can hear his rambling nightclub performances where we would just read from the transcripts of his trials. That exists also. But what I love about his legacy is that it just opened the door for freedom of expression and freedom of language that was obviously taken most that the, the reigns taken over most notably by George Carlin and Richard Pryor. And then obviously Sam Kennison and all of these guys, any, any comedian there, the idea that someone could get arrested for saying a uh, obscene word <laughs> on stage now seems uh, like absurd, but
2: But here we are, here we are still having discussions about and debates about what does the First Amendment mean? What is freedom of speech? What should freedom of speech be? And so I think one thing that Lenny Bruce will be remembered for and always, and it was a champion of, was the First Amendment and freedom of speech. And he did get down in the weeds legally and educated himself. And he, as you said, wrote a lot of pieces. And he was the inspiration for, as you said, Richard Pryor and George Carlin and the most incredible some comedians who weren't even didn't even say some of the things all that often that, that were a problem for Lenny Bruce but he was not only an inspiration for the craft and the innovation but for his championing first rights first amendment rights and how important that is to us
3: right and also his very heavy biting satire of a hip what he saw as a hypocritical society and I think it goes back to the strip clubs. Like I said earlier, I think it goes back to like, oh, well, we live in this very moral society where there's a big church and then we go to the strip club and there's a bunch of married guys watching naked women like what's what are these vows mean? What is this whole thing we're subscribing to mean?
2: I love that because as a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst, the concept of splitting, the concept of splitting, which is a defense mechanism whereby People want to disown the part of themselves that they feel is not acceptable, right? Not acceptable urges. And they do that by, on the other side, saying, I'm really none of those things. I'm all these marvelous, incredible, moral things. And that's where we have these cases that we see of the reverend who's, act, who's preaching, you know, there should be no homosexuality and no drugs and no promiscuity. And at the same time is doing all those things. Or we have, you know, the politician who's legislating for every conservative, you know, we shouldn't have any of these things and is in secret. He's doing all those things. And it's when those things are split which is really what Lenny Bruce pointed out, the hypocrisy interesting, of this splitting,
3: interesting. that yes. the
2: behaviors can happen, the behaviors happen. And if we would integrate those urges in our mind, it doesn't mean we have to act on them just because we think about it or we feel titillated by it. But if we could integrate that, we all have some, I guess for Lenny Bruce's time, Purian interests. <laughs> And that that's okay. We can still decide, you know, what we want to act on and what we don't. It doesn't make us a bad person to think things, to fantasize things, to partake of some things. Then we would not have as many, frankly, egregious and truly amoral things be occurring. And I think, again, what I love about what Lenny Bruce did, you know, has a lot to do with that condition of humanity. And he was certainly a champion of that.
3: Well said. Can I leave you with one final thing is that I know you brought up the first amendment and free speech and that he was advocate. It is interesting to me that through all these trials, ACLU, AWOL, not at all involved.
2: Wow. That is fascinating. I don't know about the history of the ACLU at that time, but that is really very interesting. So no defenders, from the political side. Fascinating. Oh, that's that sounds like a whole other. area. I know. That's why I love
3: this episode. Thank you for bringing me on. I appreciate it.
2: Well, that wraps things up for this episode. Thank you to my guest, Wayne Fetterman. If you want to know more information on Lenny Bruce, you should check out his podcast, The History of Stand-Up. And if you want to know more about the concepts in Personology, you can check out my book, The Power of Different, The Link Between Disorder and Genius. For mental health advice from me, you can check out my other podcast, How Can I Help? Follow me at Twitter at Dr. Gail Saltz. And until next time.
1: Personology is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Dr. Gail Saltz and Tyler Klang. The associate producer is Lowell Berlanti.
0: As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner.
1: Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wooded.
0: But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze Americano!
1: Gene! Huh? Oh! Run!